Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And my guest today is Dr. Court Verhagen. Dr. Verhagen is a visiting assistant professor of philosophy and religion at Taylor University. He holds a PhD from University of St. Andrews, and he's the author of the new book, Being in Action Coram Deo, Bonhoeffer and the Retrieval of Justification's Social Import. Dr. Verhagen, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Yeah. On Zoom. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's uh, just come back from Scotland, I'm moving to Scotland in like five weeks. Yeah, um, good. What? I wish I was. Just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's the general consensus. I just interviewed uh, John Coots for the BART podcast pretty recently, and he was like, oh, I just wish yeah. I could go back and do it over again. It's hard to leave. It's hard yeah. to leave, but I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at now. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Is there any, um, so as someone who's moving over there, is there anything, any recommendations off the top of the head that like, oh, you're going to Scotland, you got to. Oh yeah. Well, you know, my first, my first thing I tell people about Scotland is uh, news of its, of its inclement weather has been greatly exaggerated. Really? I think so. My experience in St. Andrews is different than Aberdeen from what I understand, but um, is that even when it's even when it's gray, you don't get a lot of deluges or all day rain, hmm. um, and it's it's all very tolerable. You have a raincoat, you've got some boots that are relatively waterproof, you're good to go. But as far as things you have to do, some of the standard stuff, you've got to go, got to go to the Isle of Skye, got to go to the West Coast and experience that. Um, Go to Edinburgh. Do do if you can do the Christmas market in Edinburgh. Uh, if if you feel even more adventurous and want to take your kids to the Christmas markets on the continent in Germany and Belgium, those are really fabulous experiences to take mm-hmm. part of that we really love taking advantage of in our time there. And you know, ultimately, it's it's incredible to soak in the history of that space. Yeah. When when I started doing my PhD at St Andrews. Um, and started getting into the research, I came across this name, Jorg uh, Radis, um, uh, over and over again as, some, as this kind of obscure voice who wrote something really important on Bonhoeffer and Hegel. Um, but he died while he was doing this research, and it was never published. Hmm. And it's kind of been informally handed on um, uh, from person to person. I can't even remember how I got my hands on it at this point. Maybe, maybe Stephen Plant um, sent it my way, but it turns out he was a student at St. Andrews when he died. And the library in which I did some of my research was a li- were his books. <laughs> and so I turned around I, I, one day and I looked and said, read his library. And I realized, oh, like these volumes of Bonhoeffer's work, of, of Hegel and of Bart that are sitting behind me uh, belong to this person. And so, wow. you know, that's, that's kind of a more obscure. There's obviously more prominent pieces of <laughs> sure. um, British history uh, that you can engage with in Scotland, but that was that was just kind of one instance for me that was really, uh, you know, uh, personally enriching. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm really excited, man. I, we just secured a flat over there, um, so I think, I mean, tickets are bought. It's happening. So, 
Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but anyway, you were in St. Andrews. I brought up the Scotland question because that's where you, uh, you did your PhD as well. Um, what led you there? What brought you to St. Andrews? Um, you mentioned, obviously, this is the Bonhoeffer podcast. You wrote a book on Bonhoeffer. How did your interest in Bonhoeffer start and what took you to do a PhD on Yeah, well, that's it, it's a longer story. I'll tell you the short version. Um, I, I had not really, I was supposed to read Life Together during my undergrad and in typical undergraduate fashion, sure. uh, maybe skimmed like half a chapter. Um, uh, sad to confess at this point, but, um, my senior year of undergraduate, uh, I was given a box of books by my opa. So my Dutch, my Dutch grandfather, mm-hmm. and, uh, he had kind of, he was a physician, but he had a side interest in philosophy or theology. And two of the books in there were cost of discipleship and ethics, kind of a small 1960s paperback volumes and I didn't engage with them immediately but after I graduated um, finished my undergrad I went and lived out kind of did the transcendental thing in the mountains of Colorado for a while and during that time I began to read the BART and I read Cost of Discipleship and that was a really pivotal moment for me um, where I kind of uh, at at some points thought, wow, he, Bonhoeffer is giving voice in a much more eloquent and profound way to things that I've thought. Now other times thinking, oh, he's talking to me and I uh, should eat, probably listen, but also want to like go hide behind a rock because it's so pointed. And um, that, was, that was moving personally, but also just got uh, the wheels spinning academically. I then went on to do my master's at Gordon Conwell And there is a professor of systematic theology there, Gordon Isaac, who um, has done a lot of work on Luther. And he offered a seminar on Bonhoeffer, um, which I took, and another seminar on Luther, and then another seminar on Oswald Bayer. And this kind of just thrust me into this world of Luther and Bonhoeffer. But Bonhoeffer was kind of, remained my my muse through it all. And... Um, uh, part of that I think is because it is the reason why many people are drawn to Bonhoeffer, the, the synergy between life and work. And when you read him, um, his words matter or hold a weight, not just intellectually, but they can kind of sink down into your limbs and your extremities in a way where, oh, there's, there's something animating, um, about the way he writes. And so I think I, I brought that abiding interest to the table when I eventually made it to Scotland. My wife and I were directing a study abroad program for Taylor University, which is where I now work, but we were directing a, an abroad program in Ireland um, mm. at the time. And I'd applied to PhD programs and um, I've always been quite interested in kind of interdisciplinary work across biblical studies and, and theology and an opportunity came up to do that uh, at the Lagos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology at the University of St. Andrews. And so I took it and that, that was the start of my PhD. Now I thought for a little while that I might kind of really pivot and do uh, something with more of a New Testament focus. Um, but after getting a chapter of that thesis, um, uh, thoroughly dressed down by N.T. Wright, I, I began to wonder, 
if maybe I should be slightly less ambitious and stick to what I know. And um, that, that uh, caused me to pivot back towards Bonhoeffer, but it was, it was the good sort of pivot because as, as you've probably seen in my book, I've got a chapter on, on Paul and sort of the Pauline province of uh, Bonhoeffer's thought and, and really that interdisciplinary setting provided the, the energy to kind of think in that direction and think in, in a different way and at a different angle um, on what's going on with Bonhoeffer with respect to justification. Awesome. That's great. Um, you start your book out um, with first kind of detailing Luther's thought on justification, those sorts of things. So I guess I'll just start out with wondering um, if you can answer why is it important to study Luther if you're studying Bonhoeffer? This is your first layup. Softball. Yeah, that's great. Love <laughs> it. Um, uh, you know, I guess I could say go read Michael DeYoung's book uh, on Bonhoeffer and Luther. He makes a pretty persuasive case there. But I mean, I think really it distills down to Bonhoeffer is self-consciously Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And um, what I love about him is he's self-consciously Lutheran, but not slavishly Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you kind of read some of these people who have written on more explicitly on the relationship between Bonhoeffer and Luther, they all kind of agree. Bonhoeffer loves Luther. He doesn't feel beholden to the Lutheranism he receives and his, his kind of academic milieu. Um, he wants to find Luther for himself. And um, he recognizes that um, it's not enough to slavishly repeat what Luther thought, but we need to think Luther in relation to um, current context and, and what Christ is demanding of us today. Mm-hmm. And um, that seems to be central to how Bonhoeffer imagines his, his ministry uh, as a pastor, but also the theological task. You know, if there were two people that Bonhoeffer wanted to be in agreement with more than any other, I think it's Luther and, and Paul. Yeah, hmm. that's great. What are some of the, uh, the like key ideas in Luther's thought uh, that Bonhoeffer picks up on? Let's say like creation, fall, reconciliation, those sorts of things. What, what are some of those ideas that you see everywhere in Bonhoeffer? Yeah, so I think I think that's a really good way to put it, Corey, that you kind of see everywhere in Bonhoeffer. Um, kind of how I make the case in the book is I, I, I spend less time saying, well, this is where Bonhoeffer is directly quoting Luther, or directly citing Luther. But I try to think um, some key aspects of Luther's work, in particular, um, his disputa- disputation concerning um, humanity. Um I try to think Bonhoeffer's theology against that background and, and kind of looking in the sources that Bonhoeffer is working with, um, the, the primary uh, text or uh, anthology of Luther that he was working with while he was um, doing his university studies, that disputation is in there and we have it, he cites it uh, multiple times. And so we kind of have some, some, some good reason to think that he was aware of it. Um, but more what I'm doing rather than trying to like ground it in here's really substantial, substantial, substantive, concrete interaction with Luther over this disputation. But, but how does Bonhoeffer's theological uh, um, approach 
uh, reflect and resonate with what Luther's putting forward there. And, and really what's central to the disputation concerning humanity is that Bonhoeffer puts forward this way of understanding what it means to be human. Uh, that, is, that is governed by the logic of justification. That is governed by this idea that human beings are simultaneously creatures, uh, fallen sinners, and reconciled in Christ alone. And the way he arrives at that, Luther arrives at that, is by saying, listen, reason is great. Um, it's one of God's greatest gifts to human beings. We can't underestimate it. It's deeply important. And I teach philosophy, so I'm all about that. Uh, but Luther also is careful to point out, listen, but reason only, only gives us reliable access to a certain section of reality. And Luther refers to Aristotle's four causes here, um, the efficient, the material, the formal, and the final. And he says, listen, reason only really gives us access to the material world and maybe the formal aspect of reality a little bit. But as far as first causes, where everything came from and what everything's heading towards, that's only something that can be revealed. And so to understand what it means to be human, we have to look to revelation. What has God revealed to be true about humanity and how he relates to humanity? And I think this is for Luther forecasted, and this is something I think totally carries over into Bonhoeffer's understanding of the task of theology, is when Luther in his um, commentary on Psalm 51 says, listen, the subject matter of theology is the, the justifying God and the sinning human. Mm-hmm. Everything in characteristic Luther fashion, everything beyond that is poison and error. <laughs> and I think that's really true for Bonhoeffer. The mode in which he's doing theology is, is thinking how does this justifying God relate to sinning humanity? And how is that decisive for what it means to be human, to act humanly, and to imagine and understand our existence in the world? That's great. I remember when I was doing my master's thesis and I was, I had like turned in a set of pages to Adam Nieder, who was my advisor. And he was like reading through it. And he was like over and over again, circling thing and things and just saying, this is so Luther. This is so Luther. And it was specifically like the, um, the sort of black and whiteness of L- Luther, the all or nothing, the never and always <laughs> like there's only you know, never, ever look at yourself. That's one of the things that most interested me when I was doing my thesis was about sort of cognition. And what does it mean to uh, like to never look at yourself and always look out to Christ? Um, yeah, but I really love that about about. Uh, your book is when you're talking about sort of that, that ontology that you have to see yourself in my justification to really see yourself. Um, and even then you kind of see yourself through Christ. You don't just look back at yourself. Um, right. You mentioned yeah. self, self, self-perception is mediated. I yeah. mean, that, 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 and understanding of self has to be mediated by Jesus. That's where we really get in the Christology lectures. I think. Yeah. You, you mentioned that obviously he's, he's really Lutheran. There's this idea of, uh, I don't know, honestly, if it's just Luther. I'm sure it's before him as well. Corcurvimense. So this understanding of some nature is being curved in on the self curved in on itself. You talked about uh, sort of that um, the human experience is sort of like sectioned off from all of reality. It's like a section of reality that uh, justification kind of illuminates what else is going on, really. Um, How does the Corcurvimense 
what is it and how does how does it affect humanity and that understanding of that little bubble of reality that's not not the full full picture yeah yeah no that's great um yeah so yeah luther gets corcovum say from from augustine i'm it's probably mediated to him in other ways there's enough history in between there that i'm sure other people that i'm not aware of are writing about it right. um i'll confess my ignorance on that front but Matt Jensen, actually, if you're interested, wrote a great book on um, Corcoran and, and say, and Augustine and Luther. It's uh, fantastic. But I think, uh, I think, you know, one way to one way to think about how Luther's talking about it, and I think how Bonhoeffer picks up on it, is the Corcoran and say is this is this, is is kind of world creating, but an artificial world. You know, when the heart turns in on itself, you the the person is it's like choosing having this giant mansion that you own that's that's totally kitted out and choosing to live in a tiny dollhouse in mm-hmm. one room of that mansion and never leave it um that you've created this artificial reality that's defined on your terms um uh that's structured according to uh one's own desires to a certain extent and and so this is this is for for Bonhoeffer, particularly apt way, he talks about this in a number of ways. This isn't the only one, but a, a particularly apt way of what it looks like to turn away from this relatedness to God um, for God's creative intent, which is right relationship, mutual loving relationship with human beings to be disrupted by sin is in this turning towards self. And, you know, I think this is, I think some, some scholars like uh, Lisa Dahlhill have helpfully pointed out that Bonhoeffer is maybe uh, his positioning as a as a as a, a, a white male German kind of makes him a little too focused on the sort of self-centeredness aspect of sin. He doesn't consider how sin might manifest itself in terms of self-diffusiveness, um, like um, uh, totally just giving oneself out um, in, in in an extreme and intense sort of way. Um, and not being aware of one's true self in that sense. And I think that's appropriate. But I think there's a lot to learn from um, how Luther and Bonhoeffer exposit the, the, the concept of Corbum and say there. That's great. You have this extra, this, um, this great chapter uh, relating uh, Kant, Kant. It's like, I have to say it correctly. <laughs> I guess I'll probably get someone. Um, I'm going off of Phil Ziegler's pronunciation, so if, if I'm saying it wrong, blame that's, him. <laughs> that's, that's a safe bet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so uh, Kant's anthropology, um, you have a, a, a chapter on that, uh, comparing it to Bonhoeffer's mm-hmm. um, sort of the self-understanding that you mentioned. How I'm wondering how Kant's understanding or Kant's German idealism played mm-hmm. into sort of the German society and kind of like painted the mm. picture there. Um, and how does Bonhoeffer's anthropology differ? And uh, does it lead them to different conclusions? And does it help kind of detail about how Bonhoeffer even lands completely on the other side of the, you know, with the resistance and on a different spot? Uh, that's a big yeah. question, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's a big question. Um, and uh one I try to be in, in the final draft that is my book, I try to be really careful about because sure. when I first wrote this as a thesis, I, I, I kind of really wanted to state strongly the case that there's this clear line we could draw 
from Kant and idealism to national socialism and, you know, um, Bonhoeffer's opposition to them both. And uh, I think I got some really helpful and appropriate pushback that maybe that wasn't taking sort of the contingencies of history um, into account thoroughly enough. That being said, I try to more cautiously make a suggestive case in this chapter um, uh, that Kant's uh, teleological, moral, rationalistic um, understanding of what it means to be human, uh, it corresponds in some ways to the, the self-enclosure that we see with a core curve, I would say. And what I mean by that is um, Kant's understanding of what it means to be human. And there are a number of Kant scholars who, I mean, Kant himself seems to suggest that anthropology is the starting point of philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and what he did for most of his life to make money was teach anthropology, uh, which I, when I found that out, I was like, that's, that's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, his anthropology is also horrifyingly racist. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, been brought up by a, a number of people in our current context uh, uh, to kind of explain some of the ways in which we as a Western society have inherited some of those genealogies. But um, what Kant, I think, it comes, comes to with his understanding of what it means to be human is uh, what it means to be human is essentially um, to be rational and rationally ordered to a moral telos. And uh, one, a telos that is cosmopolitan in nature, this is how he talks about it. And so this era of kind of um, civilization, but civilization uh, defined um, according to a certain sort of Germanic Kantian, um, I've never left Konigsberg sort of <laughs> perspective. Uh, um, and because that telos is one that can be grasped and seized, by a person using their rational capacities. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't require revelation or any sort of inter intervention to say here, here's what being human is all about. For Kant, you can discern that on your own. And so he's got this radical account of sin, but ultimately that, that, that doesn't, um, that doesn't affect the fact that, um, you know, ultimately um, we have access to what it means to be moral and what it means to be rational within us. And indeed, when he talks about Jesus, it's really, it's really fascinating section in, um, in religion within the bounds of mere reason, uh, where he talks about Jesus as a moral exemplar, Christ as, uh, as an example, an instantiation of the possibility of being fully moral that we all hold within us. So we don't need Jesus to encounter us, to critique us in any sort of substantive way, to give us the meaning of, of human existence um, as a gracious gift. Uh, Jesus just affirms that it's already a possibility within us. And in fact, in the, in the Cambridge critical edition of that, um, of that book, the index, um, calls that section has has an entry for justification and the page numbers are for that section in um religion within the bounds of mere reason which i thought was really really fascinating um to identify in that way because it is not what 
Luther or Bonhoeffer would understand by justification. But so how does Bonhoeffer correspond to that? I guess uh, yeah, opposite approach. Yeah, sorry, um, okay. I got carried away with. No, you're good. There. This is perfect. Um, I gave you a big question, so let's break it up. Yeah. So I think, I mean, ultimately, what we see with what we see with Bonhoeffer is uh, he um, is suspicion or suspicious of uh, reason's ability to to give us the sort of information we need about what it means to be human. Um, he sees the disruptive nature of sin, um, but also in order to properly perceive reality according to faith, we need faith. We need the disruptive nature of reconciliation to kind of place us back in a space where we can see um, and, and, and come to understand by the power of the spirit, um, by the power of grace, um, what is um, what is being human all about? And so for Bonhoeffer, justification, um, insofar as it takes into account the disruptive nature of sin and reconciliation, uh, entails that we can't, we can't grasp what it means uh, to be human before God. Um, we can't substitute our own Weltanschauung, our own worldview, mm-hmm. that, that no matter how coherent it is, um, uh, we remain sinners. And if we remain sinners, then Christ needs to encounter us from the outside, needs to shatter that sort of coherent worldview that we've concocted for ourselves and, and um, uh, call us to discipleship and the way of seeing in the world that that dynamic reality of discipleship entails. That's awesome. Um, so from your, in your book, you take this understanding, this kind of detailed uh, anthropology of Bonhoeffer's, and then you relate it to the Apostle Paul um, and Paul's writings um, and kind of the continuity between the two. So I'm wondering if you could kind of lay out, what do you think Paul's understanding of humanity's relationship to God is and how does Bonhoeffer correspond to that? Yeah, so it's important here that I kind of uh, preempt any pretense to being a legit New Testament scholar. Uh, in, in, this, in this chapter, I am really indebted to people like Susan Grove Eastman and John Barclay and um, Ernst Kasemann, for sure, in, in kind of uh, thinking through um, this way of understanding Paul. But really what I'm trying to do in this chapter is I'm trying to make them a move that Bonhoeffer scholars have wrestled with for a long time, which is a move kind of from his, his early sort of academic theology to his later more kind of uh, ethics of discipleship, we might call it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wrestling with that because I'm trying to think, okay, so if I think that in his early theology, uh, justification is decisive for what he means to be human, um, how does that then, um, how, how does that, what does that look like? Yeah. Does, does, it, does it make the transition into this later ethics of discipleship? Uh, most, most Bonhoeffer scholars have said, look, there's continuity here. It's not a disjunct in thought. There's continuity. And I tend to agree with that. But what does that continuity look like? And so what I do is, is I try to think uh, Bonhoeffer's take on what it means to be human in relation to what I'm, what I'm getting, seeing in Paul and reading in this Pauline theology. And it, you can, it distills to two points. And one is um, this, this participative dimension, uh, 
in, in Pauline thought. So uh, part of what it means to be human is to be relational and uh, certain kind of apocalyptic strands in Pauline theology have really pointed this out that um, human beings are always enthralled in or uh, beholden to a Lord, whether that's the Lordship of sin or the Lordship of Christ. And um, Susan Grove Eastman does an excellent job of, of sh showing how this speaks to the inherently relational nature of what it means to be human. We're never sort of um, these atoms. There's, we don't have this sort of atomistic existence. Our existence is determined in relation to another, to a Lord, and then also to those around us. And, um, and so kind of seeing that in, in Paul's thought that, that what it means to be human is to be uh, relationally bound to it, to a Lord and to other people. Um, and, uh, and thinking that um, in relation to what Bonhoeffer puts forth in his early theology, which is that Christ is this point of unity for, the, for that, this, what he calls the historical dialectic of creation, sin, and redemption. Mm -hmm. These are all three aspects of what it means to be human. They coincide, and what holds it together is Jesus Christ, the image of God, we see in Colossians. Mm -hmm. And... Um, if Jesus is what holds it together, then um, uh, in order to, to kind of be unified or whole, that, that happens through our being bound to Jesus Christ. And, and um, this, this new reality that we have in baptism, in death and resurrection, this new mode of being. And uh, particularly for Paul, it seems like being bound to Jesus Christ is a dynamic reality. So it's not just that Christ is some abstract intellectual point of unity for our fragmented selves, but that we are actually, um, we actually participate by the spirit in the person of Jesus Christ. And because for Bonhoeffer, decided, decidedly, Jesus is resurrected, alive and present, mm -hmm. we're bound to a person, not an idea. And a person is moving and has a mission in the world. And, and, and so, um, I think what I see this doing is drawing this sort of kind of um, uh, historical dialectic of creation and redemption and this uh, into a uh, more active and ethics oriented mode. And so um, thinking Bonhoeffer in and through Pauline theology helps to see that. And then the second piece is the has to do with thinking that dialectic of creation and redemption, uh, particularly in relation to Bonhoeffer or Paul's emphasis on the body. Mm -hmm. um, that when Paul talks about sin and he talks about uh, reconciliation or redemption, oftentimes he's talking about a body, a body beholden to sin, save me from this body of sin, um, the resurrection body that is redeemed. And he also speaks to the intrinsic goodness, the created goodness of the body. And that, in, in many ways, the, the body is the, the locus of um, this, this historical dialectic where it interfaces. And that, again, moves kind of Bonhoeffer's early academic theology and meditations on what it means to be human um, into the embodied realm, which, again, moves us towards ethics. And so, in many ways, this chapter is, is 
Dry and Bonhoeffer interrelationship with Pauline theology to think about how do we make that transition. Um, and so it's positing that this is a viable way of doing it. And then the next couple of chapters, I try to show how this cashes out in thought. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated that. I, I think probably, I don't know, my one blind spot that I have to keep going back to, I'm sure I have many, <laughs> this is just one I've just realized in the past few years is that I, I do think really atomistically. I do, I tend to read theology and think like, Mm -hmm. um, it may be, may have, maybe it's worsened from COVID I'm just in the house by myself for <laughs> quite a while. <laughs> the, I loved the, um, cause I, I, uh, something I really love about Bonhoeffer is his emphasis on, uh, sort of moment by moment dependence on Christ. So again, and again, this participatory union with Christ. And I loved how you use that and it kind of fleshed out that participation is action. Um, it is mm -hmm. not just sort of this um, mindfulness of Jesus constantly of the forgiveness of sins, mm -hmm. but it is a, it's a doing um, that he's called us to. Um, it's really great. Um, so you mentioned, obviously you mentioned that the, it plays out into real life with concrete, <laughs> real people, uh, real interactions, real ethics. Um, so I have a two-part question here. One's kind of a, a Pauline thing and another one. Um, so I'll just give you the, the first one. Um, how does justification and sanctif sanctification relate to each other? How, how do they relate to each other in Bonhoeffer's thought? And then the follow-up to that, and this is from um, one of our Patreon supporters. Um, uh, so essentially, we have a Patreon that people can contribute monthly to support the podcast. And I always throw it out, hey, I'm interviewing this person, would you like to ask them a question? So this is from Chris Button, who is another bon, uh, another uh, Bonhoeffer PhD student at Aberdeen. Um, he asks, how does Bonhoeffer link justification to sanctification in relation to, to the collective person? So again, yeah, to summarize, good. how does justification and sanctification relate to each other in Bonhoeffer's thought? And then how do those things relate to the body, the collective person? Yeah, so the way that I read Bonhoeffer on this is I, I take my cues from from Betka here, who suggests mm -hmm. essentially that that justification and sanctification are two sides of the same coin for Bonhoeffer. And um, from my understanding, this is a pretty is, is not an unusual position for a Lutheran to hold. Um, although maybe uh, Bonhoeffer gives more credence and more airtime to sanctification than some strands of, of Lutheranism mm -hmm. want to, because there's kind of language of returning to our justification daily um, right. in Luther that, that really gives it pride of pride of place. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think for Bonhoeffer justification is what, what uh, binds us when we're justified um, mm -hmm. in Christ, we are bound to Jesus Christ. And so our, our sanctification is, is a, um, is a preservation of that binding relationship unto redemption. And what I mean by that is sanctification is just the, the God continuing to graciously hold us um, or, or the spirit graciously continuing to bind us to Jesus Christ. And in such a way that we prompting, um, we are drawn after Christ and his mission in the world. Um, and so uh, I think that sanctification and justification come together if we understand justification in this sort of uh, 
participatory unitive mode. Um, so sanctification is just an expression of what it means to follow after the person that wants bound to, that being Jesus Christ. Mm. So that, that would be my answer to the first part. Um, <laughs> the, the, the second the second one the relationship between justification and sanctification the collective person so uh i don't know if i can say much to kind of the collective person as such if we're thinking that kind of in the the technical way in which bonhoeffer uses it in sanctorum communio but it does seem to me that the the sanctification is is intimately bound up with the role that the church as you know, a very important collective person for Christian existence um, plays. And I think this is because for, for Bonhoeffer, um, and I touch on this a little bit in my book, is that we, we are never just individualities and prior to relationality. Both have to be held together. And he also sees that our, our individuality is shaped by the collective persons that we're engaged with. So um, uh, we can't be reduced to collective persons, but we also can't be reduced to individuals. And so there's kind of this dynamic relation between the two. And I think for Bonhoeffer, when we're justified by faith, we are, we are um, uh, ushered in to life of the church. We are bound to it. The church becomes constitutive and definitive of our identity in a certain way. And one way to think about this, I kind of gesture to in the book is that um, if we're thinking in terms of the Lutheran divide between kind of effective and forensic modes of justification, um, uh, Bonhoeffer views the church as kind of holding the effective import of justification. It's held in that collective person such that I can never say, look, that righteousness is mine as an individual, my own, my precious, you know, um, but, um, but it really is definitive for identity in our existence because our identity in our existence is, is intimately bound up with the church because for Bonhoeffer, the church is Christ existing as community. And so because of that, I think um, the church then becomes the central locus for our sanctification. It's where we are kind of um, enculturated um, into what it means to live out of our justification um, in a significant way. And, you know, and I think probably this is given supreme expression to in, in discipleship uh, and Bonhoeffer's time at Finkenwalde, um, thinking of the church in this kind of preparatory fashion and then transitioning into ethics and letters of papers. What does it look like to like move, transition out of that preparatory time into a time of action? Awesome. Um, you end your book with this really uh, fascinating and excellent chapter um, on sort of how we could apply this. Um, I guess, so I'm, I interviewed Dr. Di Rayson probably like two or three interviews ago. Mm -hmm. And she was great. She wrote, uh, her book recently is on Bonhoeffer and climate change. Mm -hmm. And I'm always so interested um, just where people are passionate about in general, but also especially um, how, what, kind of problems in the world they think that Bonhoeffer's theology can help with, I guess. Um, yeah, so, so I was sure. like really into the interview with her because, uh, you know, like, I'll be honest, when, whenever I was reading Bonhoeffer, I never, like, that didn't really come 
come up in my mind uh right uh, climate change and then i read it and i'm like well maybe i've just been misreading bonhoeffer this whole time because there's plenty of great stuff here <laughs> Thank, thanks die you know um yeah so totally I, i'm interested you have this chapter on white supremacy so i guess i'm wondering um how did the decision come about to write a chapter on white supremacy and bonhoeffer's thought so i mean there's, there's the biographical component of what got me interested in this. And um, rather than telling that story, I'll just, I'll speak to what I was thinking when I was at St. Andrews, thinking about writing this thesis. And one thing I was thinking was, what does it look like for me as an American who is trying to write a, a thesis on theology and ethics, uh, ostensibly for the church, because my deep conviction is that theology is for the church. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's its central function. What does it look like for me to do that faithfully in the UK? Mm. And of course, while I'm in the UK, you know, there, the, the, the racial tension and strife and police brutality, you know, is coming up on the news regularly. It's, it's, it's um, during an incredibly tense time in our country during Trump's presidency. And so I, I begin to think, what, what, how, how should wanting to be faithful to the church that I anticipate um, being active in and a part of when I finish this PhD, how, how should that inflect what I do here? And um, I just kept coming back to um, the, the kind of cluster of questions around racial justice, white supremacy, and, and what the church is doing or not doing. Yeah. about it and reggie williams book on bonhoeffer's black jesus was was really helpful um as was josiah young's book no difference in the fair which is kind of a, an earlier book on um bonhoeffer and race and 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 so they were kind of the sparks that said oh i can think in this way and you know really reggie's kind of um putting his finger on bonhoeffer's time in harlem really gave me credence to think in that direction in, in a lot of ways, give me permission. And, uh, and so I began to think, what, 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 what are the implications of justification by faith for this? Like if I'm making the case with Bonhoeffer that justification by faith has social and ethical implication, uh, how does this cash out? Yeah. How do I test this? And so that I, I decided to test it um, in relation to, um, yeah, the, the perennial challenge of, of uh, racism and white supremacy that confronts the, the American church and the, the Western church um, mm. more generally. So we're short on time here, but I guess I, I'm wondering if you could flush that out just a little bit since I previewed that you had this awesome chapter. Um, what are some of the ways that justification and plays out the social import to racial reconciliation. Yeah, so um, I'm not gonna do full justice by it here, but what I really focus on is the, is the section at the beginning of the Christology lectures mm -hmm. where Bonhoeffer uh, kind of gives his very powerful articulation of Jesus as the counter law God. Yeah. You know, that kind of, he counterintuitively flips the language of John one on its head. Um, and really cast Christ as having this, this critiquing effect that, that when, when Jesus encounters us, that, you know, either we die or the, the, or he dies, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, 
obviously Jesus died, but also that means if, if, if that encounter is, is meaningful for us and determinative for our identity, there's also a death for us as well. We participate in his death. Um, this is what baptism is symbolic of. And so I kind of outline um, what Bonhoeffer's doing there with the counter logos. And then I, 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 I basically make a move. I say, listen, for, for Bonhoeffer, this is, this is central to what justification is all about. It's reminding us that um, there's not a smooth continuity between creation and reconciliation. Um, there, there are things uh, about ourselves that we are blind to, um, that we think are um, either that we ignore, or we think are constitutive of our identity, um, that, that when we encounter the counter logos, get critiqued. Mm-hmm. And I then make the move, I suggest, listen, um, I think that, it, that it, it's not implausible to suggest that one of the ways in which Jesus encounters us um, in the form of the counter logos, um, and when I say us, I mean particularly um, white Christians sure. in, this, in this historical moment, um, is, is in the person of the black neighbor. Um, and so um, what, I, what, I, what I try to suggest is um, taking the reality of justification seriously should, should entail um, an awareness of um, our own imperfect grasp mm-hmm. of our identities, our, our um, lack of awareness of the ways in which they're constituted in fact, that one of the roles that Jesus plays is making us aware of those things, mm-hmm. that we can repent and, and move away from them, and that God works through our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, Jesus moves and encounters us through the persons that we are in community with, and um, this is also part of that, that justificatory work, and um, if we understand justification in this way, uh, it should open us up to this critique of the black neighbor um, in, in uh, you know, kind of uh, to, to flip some language from J. Cameron Carter and guys like Charles Mills on its head, you know, rendering whiteness visible mm-hmm. um, such that it, it is something that can be repented of. Wow. That's so good. Thank you. Um, I wanted to, let, let's, I have one last question for you. I end every interview this way. It's just a little fun question, mainly to get book recommendations. Um, so uh, if you were trapped on a desert island and you could only yeah. take one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer, so think primary, secondary source, um, what are the two books that you're taking and why? Yeah, so I'm definitely taking discipleship. Uh, nice. That's where it all started for me. And, and it's, it's still kind of the, the center um, when it comes to my engagement with Bonhoeffer. Uh, secondary source is, is harder. Um, I, I think that I would probably, I would probably go with Clifford Green's uh, Theology of Sociality that mm-hmm. I, I kind of offer a soft critique um, of that book. In, in the second chapter of my book, uh, partly because it's just been so foundational for, for Bonhoeffer scholarship, it, you can't engage with it and it is a soft critique, but I, I did just learn so much from it. Um, and 
um, it really kind of formed both in conversation and agreement and disagreement, all of those things uh, at a very early stage, my, my thinking uh, on Bonhoeffer. And so I'm really uh, grateful for that. So if I was to take one, would probably be that. If I could take two, I would take Mike Mawson's book on uh, Sanctorum Communio with me yeah. because um, I believe in Sanctorum Communio. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a great book. And, awesome. and Mike really just lays it there. Yeah. Yeah, that was so helpful. I read that before I read Sanctorum Communio and I'm so glad I did because it would have just gone right over my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It just distills it in such pivotal ways and his 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 distillation of the historical dialectic of um creation uh fall and redemption was was really important for me early on as i was thinking through these things awesome well Corey, thank you so much for doing this um my my pleasure Corey. yeah the book is being and action quorum deo bonhoeffer and the retrieval of justification social import by court verhaken this has been great i appreciate it Thanks, Corey, man. Take it easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Bonhoeffer pod. We have quite a few supporter benefits available on there. Uh, so please check those out. And speaking of the Patreon, Special thank you to the supporters of this show, Soren Jensen, Andrew Clark Howard, Hank Janelle, Arthur Houts, Greg Harbaugh, Chris Button, Chris Sunby, Wilco Ollies, John Cromarty, Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, and of course, as always, a special thank you to you, the listener. I love doing these and I look forward to them each month. So thank you so much for listening.